tap your toe, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> that was awesome, ladies. Thanks. Thank you, thank you. Spread some straw on the floor, take your shoes off, tap your toes, right? That was awesome. I told Susie before, that's the kind of music I grew up with. I love that kind of stuff. So today, of course, is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, uh, which began Ash Wednesday, this, this past Wednesday, uh, and runs the 40 days minus the Sundays through Easter. And if you're not used to it, it's similar in a lot of ways to the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. But I think, I think maybe Lent is much less understood because uh, Advent's easy to get, right? Uh, it's normal for us to look forward to the holidays. Uh, kids get that idea really quickly, right? If you, have, if you have grandkids, they start looking forward to December 25th before fall is even over, right? So when we talk about Advent being a time of looking forward to Christmas, I think we get that pretty easy. Uh, and Easter we get. Easter is that joyous day of, of Christ's resurrection when we sing hallelujah Christ arose and, and we marvel at the miracle of the empty tomb. But, but I think the solemnity and the self-reflection that comes before Easter uh, is, is sometimes something that not very many Christians actually practice anymore because the message of Lent is much different. It's much harder to, to get a grip on and to understand because it's a message of looking at ourselves against the light of Scripture and seeing who we really are. Uh, it's a message of reflecting on our own sinfulness and honestly facing our temptations while at the same time finding strength in Scripture uh, and ultimately looking at the cross of Christ and seeing all of our sins being nailed there and all of our punishments being taken away by a loving Savior. And so as we begin our first uh, official Lord's Day in the season of Lent, I want to start to do that and get a handle on that together as we get into the text. And it's a story I know you're all familiar with, but one I want to go a little deeper on and, and probably at a little different angle than we have had the opportunity to do in a while. Uh, and that's the text that speaks to us of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness during his 40 days there. And so we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, um, the compilers of the lectionary text have us kind of circling back around. I know we were all the way down at chapter 9, but today, if, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do have your Bibles with you, we're going back to Luke chapter 4, and I'll be reading to you the first 13 verses. So this is Luke chapter 4, beginning, <coughs> excuse me, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For forty days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, uh, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority. And all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and... 
On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It's been said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the story of this 40 days your son spent in the wilderness. We thank you, Lord, for this Lenten season and this opportunity uh, to spend time seeing how we look in comparison to the light of the gospel and how we look in the light uh, of, of your word to us. And so, Father, help us to spend not only this season, but especially these next few moments that we're together uh, in the light of your Holy Spirit, exposing our hearts, uh, lighting up all those dark areas of our lives and reforming all those places that need to be conformed to your will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the lectionary calendar that we've been following, um, the first Sunday of Lent always kicks off each, each time with the reading of the temptation of Jesus and his 40 days in the wilderness to begin Lent with. Uh, and that's actually the reason that Lent is 40 days long, to coincide with those 40 days in the desert. And the story, as you saw, takes off right after Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan River, right after that great moment, if you remember, when Jesus comes up out of the water and he has this, this vision of the heavens being opened and, and he sees the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and he hears the voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, and all of these things, as we looked at before, acknowledging that Jesus is that bridge available between God and man. And that access to him is not made in himself, and it's not made in any other religion or in any law, uh, but it's only in his person and his work at the cross. And church, this is where that journey to the cross actually begins. Because before uh, he ever preached a sermon, before he ever healed a single person, before Jesus ever had a single convert, he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be, as the Bible says, tempted greatly by the devil uh, and not just with some half-hearted temptations not just in a half-hearted kind of way this is no uh, phony opportunity that the devil is giving he made some pretty enticing offers because remember for Jesus by coming to earth to live as a man he willingly chose to take on our frailties right he got hungry he got tired he felt pain he experienced the heights and depths of emotion uh, all the things that we experience, except he just didn't have our predisposition to want to sin. And I want to touch on that and, and pause just a moment to kind of explore our sin nature uh, before we go further into the story. And I know I shared this quote with you before, but it's, it's been a while. Uh, it's probably one of my top ten favorites from British journalist and media personality Malcolm Muggeridge, who said, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact and at the same time, the most intellectually resisted. Right? So he said the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable fact, and at the same time, the most intellectually resisted. So in other words, it's pretty easy to look around at the world and see that we're living in sin, and to see that we're living in sin in our own lives, but that's the difficult part is wanting to admit it, right? Especially to ourselves, because the truth is none of us, uh, me included, ever wants to admit how willful and self-centered we actually can be. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, uh, Even to believers, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. 
obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in this unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And so you see how we look from God's perspective if we're outside Christ? He says you may be walking around, but if you're not in the faith, you're still dead in sin. You're still dead on the inside. And from his point of view, he's saying we're really just walking corpses. We might look good on the outside, but the truth is we're really just dead on the inside. And church, it's only after God's Holy Spirit brings us to conversion that we actually recognize that and then finally have all the other areas of life start to fall right into place. And then we become delivered from the lies that we habitually tell ourselves, right? Uh, From the lies that say we're all just basically good people, uh, trying to do good things. We try to seek God and live in a good society and focus on our self-achievements. You know, that may sound good, but it's a lie. Because the truth is, the truth and the gospel are not about us. The gospel, the good news, always originates with God and not with me. It starts with God's nature and not with mine. And any other salvation narrative is not just wrong, it's heresy. Right? Brothers and sisters, God alone is holy. God alone is just. God alone is righteous. And that's a good thing. right? It would be a terrifying thing if this universe and this reality had been created by an evil God. right? I mean, just think about it. An omnipotent being that was morally corrupt would be a living nightmare. So, so it's good that our God is holy and that our God is just, but it also presents you and me with a really big problem. Because if God is just and if he's holy, what does he do with you and me? Because the Bible says we have all sinned, right? We've all sinned against God. We've sinned against one another. We've sinned against nature and everything around us in this universe calls for our condemnation before a God who is not just good, but holy. And not only holy, but perfectly just. And the only thing, church, that can bridge the huge chasm between where we are and where God is, between those two extremes, is found in Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross. Because, church, that's where we see the unique revelation of the fullness of God's divine nature, that God is just, so he has to condemn sin, but God's love. And so he becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ who lives the perfect sinless life we couldn't and goes to the cross where all of the justice and wrath of God that you and I deserve was thrown down on him instead for, for our redemption. And so that our hearts and minds could be opened. And so we could actually hear from God. And so that we can be delivered from the vanity and delusion of this world and its diseased affections in just the same way that our Lord Jesus was. And in just the same way that he modeled for us in that 40-day ordeal in his temptation to sin by the devil. Enticing him, actually, to take the easy way out. And encouraging him to choose another way other than the cross. And at first, the temptations start out seemingly pretty harmless. Concerning that first one we read in verse 3, the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, or if... Command this stone to become bread. So the devil starts out right questioning Jesus' divinity and challenging him to prove uh, his power by using just a little bit of it for his own personal comfort, right? To satisfy his own desire, his hunger. I mean, after 40 days without food, Jesus is famished, right? I don't know if I can go for a full 40 minutes sometime. (laughs) And the devil's tempting him with probably the first thing that was on his mind, which is what? Food, right? 
Jesus responds. Jesus answered him, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. And guess what? The devil's quote, or the Jesus is quoting scripture in his battle with the devil. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, just turn there real quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 2. And this is, is God speaking through Moses to his people. And it says, remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years. See the, the parallels here. Humbling you and testing you to prove your character. Yes, he humbled you. Humbled you by letting you go hungry. And then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people, this is down in verse 17, that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And he did all of this so you would never say to yourselves, I have achieved this with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. So you see here, Jesus, he didn't just pull that scripture out of a hat, right? Uh, he knew it. And he understood the context. And he understood the point of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is that God alone is our source of provision and not our own efforts. That it's his word that's the source of our strength. And that's what Jesus is relying on to resist this temptation, setting an example for us that we can do the same. Right? Even in weakness, even in intense hunger, whether it's spiritual or physical, Jesus says he's not going to live for his own appetites. He's going to live to follow God's will because for him, God comes first. And so you see, to resist, resist temptation, you don't have to be superhuman. You just have to be supernaturally connected to the truth of God's word to resist the devil. And, and you may ask, well, hey, what would have been the big deal if Jesus had just turned a couple of stones into some bread? So what? Why wouldn't that have been okay? And the answer is because it's the beginning of a slippery slope. Right? I mean, think about it. If, if Jesus were to use just a little of his power now to avoid the discomfort of hunger, what might he be tempted to do when the greater pain of the cross comes? Because just little compromises never stay little, do they? Brother Don always tells us in, in uh, Bible studies, this uh, old song, uh, the, the chorus from it, a little sin will take you further than you wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to spend, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. Right? We see Jesus denies himself life's temporary pleasures if it will violate God's intention no matter what the issue is. Even... Even including the temptation to get out his message through flashy displays and superficial theatrics. That's, that's the next temptation. Right, we read uh, that he, meaning the devil, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, uh, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And so the devil here takes Jesus to the top of the, the temple in Jerusalem and, and quotes scripture now back to him. Uh, the devil actually quotes Psalm 91 this time, challenging him again to prove his divinity and to test God by having him jump off the top of the temple. But why such a bizarre test? I mean, why would Jesus even be tempted to jump off the top of the temple mount? Well, the devil is basically saying here to him, if you're the Messiah, let's get this show started. Why, why hide out here in the wilderness? 
Right? God will protect you. So if you're really the Messiah, then jumping from the top of the temple would be a great way to get in contact with a huge audience, right? To get a bunch of people to notice you all at once. What could be a more dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, right? But we come back again to intention. What was the devil's intention and real motive here? And the answer is he wants to tempt Jesus into self-glorification. Right? If he jumps off the top of the temple and floats down into the temple courts on the wings of angels, all the folks worshiping in the temple would have seen Jesus descending from the heavens just like they maybe imagined a Messiah might arrive. And it would have been an amazing spectacle. Right? People would have immediately, though, wanted to make Jesus their king. They'd already done that once before. But then his life from that point on would be one of just political power and military authority and earthly glory. Because that's the kind of Messiah that Jews were looking for. One that would come and save them by a dramatic show of force, a strong military leader who would descend as if from heaven and set up a kingdom on earth for his chosen people only. That's not why Jesus came, is it? He didn't come to be a king at all, much less the king of just one tiny nation, but he came to be a humble servant and to accomplish the purpose of God for all of mankind. And that purpose, church, was to be a sinless sin offering for his people. And so again, Jesus takes a step back from his own self-interest and from a possible shortcut into the hearts of the people. And he takes the harder path to honor the intention of God the Father. And so then finally the devil pulls out all the stops, right? We read the devil took him up and showed him uh, all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will. If you will then worship me, it will all be yours. So the devil takes Jesus up even higher than the temple. He takes him up to a high mountain. He shows him all of earth's offerings, right, all on every continent. And I know a lot of messages on this text focus on just the, the worldly treasures and pleasures the devil is offering. But the temptation here for Jesus, uh, folks, is even bigger than that. And they're just material wealth and just human entertainments. Because the devil's offering to surrender to Jesus also would have included his power and destructive influence that he has over this planet. Right? The devil would be giving up his power to hurt and to cause pain and to inflict suffering. He'd, he'd be laying down his power to wreak destruction and, and chaos and to incite wars. And what could Jesus as our loving Savior want more than for his people not to suffer? Right? That's a huge offer, right? But the exchange would have come at a horrendous cost because instead of bowing to the purpose of God, Jesus would have to bow to his need of Satan. The very thing, keep in mind, that Satan had wanted since his fall, right? But for him to be worshipped instead of God, violating the very thing, the whole divine intention that Lucifer was created for in the first place, was for him to be worshipped. But he was supposed to be God's chief worshipper in heaven, not to be worshipped himself, right? And I think that example proves what one scholar has said along these lines is that, and we've talked about this before too, that violation of purpose is the essence of evil. You know, I've said that to you before. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Violation of purpose being the essence of evil. See, Satan's purpose is to worship God, and he violated that, and evil is the result. But, but that's the same with every area of life, right? Whether it's, it's money or, or food or, or sex or authority or family relationships or entertainments, they all have a beneficial purpose. 
but the violation of any of their intended purposes can have devastating consequences. And that fact actually highlights something else that the devil is concealing in his offer here because, you know, even if the devil gave up his power to distort all of those things, you and I could mess them up all on our own, can't we? I mean, let's be honest, we really don't need any help from the devil to sin, do we? Right? We don't need any help to cause someone else pain. We don't need any help to wreak destruction in the world, right? We could do that all on our own. And so the trade-off would have been for nothing because we freely choose to sin all on our own. But of course, Jesus knew that. And in the end, Jesus rebukes the devil and flat out, flat out refuses his final offer by saying to him, Away from me, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he's answering the devil back with Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus reiterates here he's going to serve and honor only God and his plan and his intention for his people. And in so doing, he turns down the offer to have what sounds like everything, but what would have amounted to nothing. And so Jesus denies himself the cheap and easy road for the third time, and the devil finally leaves because there was nothing else he could offer, right? He, he offered Jesus what sounds like everything, and Jesus turned him down. And church, each of those temptations of Christ are the same temptations that you and I face every single day, right? The, the temptation to, to seek to satisfy ourselves instead of pleasing God. The temptation to try to manipulate God to attain our own goals. And the temptation to try to sidestep God's plan in an effort to have it all, but on our own terms. And so by denying these three temptations, Jesus, in effect, denies himself because he said his desire is to serve God alone, proving that he's ready to follow God's plan in total obedience. And even more, that he is qualified and more than qualified to be our Savior, resulting in the greatest gift mankind has ever received. And that we commemorate, especially during these five weeks of Lent. Because, you know, at the, at the end of this Lenten season, of course, is Holy Week. And at the end of Holy Week waits the cross. But it's there for all those who have accepted Christ that all of our failings finally come to rest. Uh, it's there that all of our sins are, are nailed. It's there that we find that dividing line between God's truth and the devil's lies. And it's the only reliable place where we can judge our intentions against the sovereign will of God. Right? There, there on the cross. Where we receive freedom from burdens of our own making. Where we get freedom from the sin that taints our souls. Where we find freedom from the penalty of death that we deserve. Because Christ takes them all and as God's son. He takes the hard road and dies for you and me. And so that's what we need to remember and to focus on this Lenten season. That Jesus didn't take the easy road to bring us temporary earthly relief. He took the harder road to give each of us who are found in him abundant and everlasting life. And church, he's waiting Right this moment to grant you a foretaste of that in this holy meal. At this table, this place of blessed bread and sacred cup. And, and yes, it's just a scrap of oil and flour. Uh, it's just a sip of grape juice. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, it is so much more. Satisfying the, the hungry soul. Miraculously quenching the, the spiritual thirst uh, that we find in ourselves. And uniting us at this joyful feast of God's table where church, none of the works of darkness have a place. Amen? Amen. We pray together. And Father God, 
Uh, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love so that we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time, particularly in this Lenten season, Lord, that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. And as we sing our communion.